Go ahead and open up your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. We continue to march through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I just want to give a little, um, well, a little mention of, uh, we had a good, it was in, it's been in your notes or in your um, bulletins the last few weeks about this preaching conference we had here uh, yesterday, and it was just a great blessing to have, um, you know, four different men from four sister churches come and just experience a little preaching workshop um, and stretch their preaching legs. Uh, Tony uh, preached for, he represented Harbin's and did a really a phenomenal job and taught me a lot from Colossians chapter 1. So I really appreciated the job he did and, um, and then all the guys did from all the churches. But more than anything, it's just a reminder of why we, what we do. We, we are to preach the word. We are to be faithful to preach the word. And so, as I say, we're, we're continuing to march through, through uh, the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, he, everyone kind of chuckled yesterday when I said we're going through the life of Jesus. We've been doing it for two and a half years, and we're only at Matthew 5. Okay, so that's just the way we are here. And, um, but I, I love the fruit that the word of God produces. You see, last week, this went past without any fanfare, and I don't want any fanfare. But last week was the seventh anniversary of Harbin's. Every Easter is our anniversary. Toby mentioned it this week. He said, seven years ago today, we were walking into this church. And um, I'm just thankful for what God does with his word. <laughs> I'm so thankful for what God does with his word. Um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 42 are our specific um, words of uh, the text that we're going to be looking at today. This is the Sermon on the Mount, obviously. Uh, we've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. It's um, one of the most famous texts in all the Bible. And now we come to one of the most famous passages within the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and uh, it's the famous turn the other cheek passage. Now let me ask the kids this. Is, have any of you guys ever gotten in trouble and responded this way? But he hit me first. Or but she took my whatever first. Have any of you guys ever done that? Children. Okay, Austin, thank you. All right. How about this morning? Has that already happened today? Maybe. It's in our human nature. We don't have to be taught. Children, by nature, because they're born with a uh, with depraved, know, immediately try to defend themselves and get even. Okay, why did you take your brother's candy bar? Well, he took mine. Okay, and that's just the way children are. Now, that's the way all of us are. We just graduate from candy bars to bigger things. Now, you may not be aware of this, but, well, let me just ask you this. Does anybody know what the most famous family feud in the history of America is? Hatfields and the McCoys, right? Does anyone know what that feud started over? What? Someone said it, I think. A pig. It started over a pig. You see, the Hatfields had a pig. And one of the McCoys saw that pig and said, that's our pig. Okay? And the Hatfields said, no, that's not your pig. And the McCoy says, yes, that's our pig. See the markings on his ear? That's a McCoy marking. And it began a feud. But you see, whenever we react, well, they did it first 
rarely do we respond with exact retribution. Usually we go just a little bit beyond. And with nearly 20 people killed by the end of that feud, let's just say that went a little bit beyond a pig. The Hatfields and McCoys are one of the most famous feuds in American history, and it was all about getting even. Oh, yeah, well, we're going to do this. Oh, yeah, well, we're going to do this. I want to remind you that we are in the midst of a verse-by-verse journey through the Sermon on the Mount. And today, Jesus deals with that, that raw, human, um, depraved desire to get even. This discourse of Jesus is about kingdom living. He's speaking to kingdom citizens. Uh, in other words, this is a sermon for Christians, for followers of Christ. There are others listening in, but Jesus is describing in these verses what kingdom life should be like. And I want to, especially since we didn't preach on the Sermon on the Mount last week, I want to give you a little bit of a recap here just regarding the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12, Jesus showed us the traits that distinguished kingdom citizens, and that was the Beatitudes. And then in verses 13 through 16, Jesus speaks of how kingdom citizens are to influence the world. We are to do, do that in such a way that God is glorified. We sang the song Glory to God this morning for a reason because all of our good deeds should exalt God in heaven. And we read about that in 1 Peter chapter 2 as well this morning. And then we get to Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 48, the rest of chapter 5. And this deals with what the righteousness of kingdom citizens should look like. We should have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so specifically, this relates to how Jesus' followers view and uphold the law of God. Jesus, first of all, shows them that he didn't come to get rid of the Old Testament law, but to fulfill it and to complete it. And his followers were to live it as it was intended to be lived, and they were to have a, a lawful living, a righteousness that exceeded that superficial righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. So with that little recap, We're now going to come to verse 38 of Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to ask you to stand now as we read God's Word. Stand now in the honor of the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 38. And this is the Word of the Lord. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I've just been really reminded this weekend of how important your word is. And so I thank you for these words here. I thank you for the Old Testament law that says eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And I thank you for Jesus' words that help us to understand what that's all about. I pray this morning that you would keep me from speaking error and that you'd give all of us ears to hear. We pray for your Holy Spirit to do that work for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. As Jesus has been doing up to this point, he has been quoting an Old Testament text, and then he has asserted his authority over that text. 
So we, we see this repeated pattern. You have heard that it was said, and then Jesus will say, but I say to you. Now, he is not setting aside or abrogating Old Testament law. Instead, just as I said a minute ago, he is fulfilling it. He is filling it up with its proper meaning. He is giving it its proper weight and its proper interpretation. And in the process, he is refuting the way the false teachers and the the scribes and the Pharisees had misused God's law. Now, in today's passage, Jesus is quoting a line that appears in three different Old Testament texts. So when he says, you have heard it said that an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth, he is quoting Exodus 21, verse 24, or Leviticus 24, verse 20, or Deuteronomy 19, verse 20. Now on the surface here, it may seem like Jesus is contradicting these Old Testament precepts when he says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But we will see that he is not doing that. We'll see that when we carefully consider the context of these Old Testament passages. Now, we don't have time today to go back and look at each one of these Old Testament texts. But these laws that Jesus was referring to are known as the laws of exact retribution or the, the lex talionis. To our modern ears, they may seem barbaric or even cruel. This whole eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But in reality, this is simply the standard of law that had ruled all civilizations since the beginning of time. Namely, that in a just society, the punishment should always fit the crime and not exceed it. In a just society, the punishment should always fit the crime and not exceed it. These laws were not about revenge. They were about proper administration of justice that didn't go beyond what it should go to. That's what these laws were about. Any society that values justice will structure its law in such a way that the law executes punishment to the evildoer, to the wrongdoer, in such a way that the punishment fits the crime. Sound jurisprudence is built upon laws that demand some form of punishment equal to the crime. The law is actually a protection from our sinful tendencies to pay one back and to add a little bit more for good measure. Our sinful tendencies when we want to deal with evil is to get back, to get revenge, and then do what the Hatfields and McCoys were doing and go a little bit beyond that just for, you know, to make a little bit of an emphasis here. But these laws in the Old Testament, this, this saying, a tooth for, eye for an eye and tooth for tooth, was just a, a general way of saying that the punishment must match the crime. The lex talionis leveled the playing field. It didn't allow for those more influential people to get away with crimes. It didn't allow the more powerful to exact unjust revenge on the less powerful. And this is very important. I want you to listen to this. These laws in the Old Testament, in Exodus, in Leviticus, and in Deuteronomy, were designed to govern civil affairs, not personal ones. They were designed to govern the civil affairs of the theocratic nation of Israel. And these laws were designed to be enforced by magistrates and judges. We see that very clearly. And you can go back and read those texts and see what the context is. These laws were given as as case law to the judges. So the judges knew how to, to rule the people with equity. 
So that's very important to understand that these were to be carried out by the magistrates and not to be carried out by individuals. It was only to be exercised by the proper authority. So this was to prevent vigilante justice, to prevent revenge. It was to promote order and it was to value human life. That's the reason the Lex Talionis is in the Old Testament. So with that Old Testament context, a couple of things to note here about how this was being used in Jesus' day. First of all, these Old Testament laws, which were negative injunctions to prevent revenge, had actually been turned by the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day into positive injunctions to permit revenge, but not only to permit revenge, but actually to demand retribution and revenge. That's how the Pharisees were using these laws. Secondly, these Old Testament laws, which were originally intended as civil injunctions to be meted out by civil authorities have been turned by the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day into personal injunctions to be, to be meted out by whomever so will. In other words, I can take matters into my own hand because the Bible gives me authority to. That's what the Pharisees were saying. Oh yeah, I'm going to get even. And I'm going to get even on the authority of God's law. And the Pharisees had distorted God's law. They were not interpreting it correctly. So the Jews of Jesus' day had, had taken God's law and were using it The way they wanted to use it, they had distorted it. They were using it for an excuse to do the very thing the law was supposed to prevent. Namely, to take retribution into their own hands. The the law was there to prevent that from happening. The law was there to say, hey, the judges are going to judge with equity. You can't take things into your own hand. But the Pharisees had taken God's law and flipped it on its head and had used it to exact revenge. They had used it to get even. To this, Jesus says that kingdom citizens must stand in stark contrast. He says in verse 39, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. So the first point this morning is simply this. Kingdom citizens are not to be people who are inclined to get even. Kingdom citizens are not to be people who are inclined to get even. That shouldn't be who we are. We aren't people that are going around looking to get even. This inclination of the Christian when harmed shouldn't be first and foremost to get even, to get the person back. Christians or kingdom citizens instead learn to rest. We rest in God, his sovereignty and his justice. That's what meekness was all about. If you'll remember when we studied meekness, meek people don't strive to get even. We need to ask, however, what does Jesus mean when he says, do not resist the evil one? What does Jesus mean here then when he says, do not resist the one who is evil? Nietzsche famously hated the Sermon on the Mount. He particularly hated this portion of the Sermon on the Mount. He commented on this passage and he opined that this text was, would promote a society of weaklings. It was an ethic of Jesus's that was totally preposterous. Is what Nietzsche said. Karl Marx, likewise, he thought these words were for weak people. And and that weak people would allow themselves to be oppressed under the thumbs of capitalists. So how are we to really understand what Jesus is saying here? Do not resist the evil one. Is he calling for a, a weak passivity? And just let evil run amok. Does Jesus want us to be doormats, to be suckers who allow ourselves to be taken advantage of by every bully, by every dictator, by every gangster that comes down the pike? 
What about when we see someone else being taken advantage of or someone else being harmed? What about in World War II when the Nazis came to the door and said, turn over all the Jews that are in your home. Are we, are we not to resist that? Don't resist evil. Just, all right, they're, they're, they're right back there in the back. Do we, do we step in and resist evil when we see others being harmed? What about your family? What if someone is threatening your family? Do we not resist evil and say, okay, fine, go right ahead. Do what you want with my family, my home. And what about things in society that are evil? Are we not to resist any of that? What are, are we not to try to curb evil in society? Are we not to fight against abortion and stand up for the biblical definition of marriage? Is that not a resistance to evil? when we do those things? Are we to stop doing that according to Jesus here? And what about text in the scripture, like James, who tells us to resist the devil and he'll flee from you. It doesn't get any, any more evil than the devil himself. So if we're not supposed to resist evil, are we supposed to resist the devil as James tells us to? What's going on here? I think when we think about these things, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that this is not a blanket statement of Jesus's that evil is never to be resisted. We run into a lot of danger when we carelessly absolutize Jesus's statements, especially these statements here in the Sermon on the Mount. We become new types of Pharisees, really. If we absolutize all that Jesus says up to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, well, we wouldn't be taking marriage vows, and we'd all be walking around with gouged out eyes and no hands. We have to be careful here. Tolstoy famously said that he believed that this passage that Jesus says here meant that it was wrong for any society to have police and army. He felt that the police and the army should be eliminated because we shouldn't be resisting evil. Hopefully, I don't have to convince you that that's foolishness. To think in such a way would violate God's word, for God says the very opposite, that there are governing authorities Meant to deal with evil. We looked at that today in our, in our Bible study. Romans 13 verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct but to bad. Would you have no fear? Uh, would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God for what? He is an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So the state, the governing authorities are God's means for avenging wrong. We even saw that in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we read at the beginning of the service. But even for us individually, this is not teaching that we are to be people of moral compromise or indifference that allows evil to run unchecked. Nor is this teaching absolute Christian pacifism. Okay, maybe some of you in here are pacifists. My dad's a pacifist. He's an absolute pacifist. He doesn't believe in, he would not fight. If he were, if he were drafted into the army, which he can't now, he's too old. But if he were, he, would, he wouldn't fight. Okay, so we, we have discuss, we've had discussions about this before. He, he's a pacifist. But I don't think you can go to this text and say this is the one that, that you have to be a pacifist. What Jesus is talking about here, and we need to understand the context when he says attention-grabbing statements like don't resist evil, when he says attention-grabbing statements like chop off your hand, gouge out your eye, don't ever take a vow, we need to understand the context in which he's saying those things. He's getting their attention, just like we do. When I tell my daughter, Emma Kate, go clean up your room or I'm going to 
throttle you. I'm not really going to throttle her, all right? But she knows what I mean. Jesus is speaking the same sort of way. We need to see that Jesus is speaking about supernatural forbearance in the hearts of his followers that in and of itself renounces evil. This whole text is about the heart. Kingdom citizens do resist evil and do love justice, but they know that evil is never defeated by resorting to evil ourselves. So we refuse to get even. There is a time to defend the weak. There is a time to stand against injustice. There is a time to protect our family. To fail to do these things would themselves be violations of God's word. When Jesus is telling us here, what he is telling us here is not about defending ourselves. He's not talking, what he is, I'm sorry, let me back up. I totally butchered that sentence. What he is talking about here is that we shouldn't have this propensity to try to defend ourselves on our terms, in our way, according to our definition of justice. That's what he's saying, don't do. That we cannot do. The Apostle Paul sums up this very disposition in the passage we read earlier in Romans chapter 12. I'll begin in verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil, but get thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap up burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, I want you to hang on to that last, those last two verses there where he says, To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Thirsty, give him something to drink. Hang on to that. I think that's very important for us to understand because we're going to come back to that at the end of the sermon. So kingdom citizens, leave Everything in the hands of God. Jesus gives us three examples of how we do that in this text. First of all, kingdom citizens are willing to let go of their honor. Kingdom citizens are willing to let go of their honor. Verse 39, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now I want to say this text is not necessarily referring to simply physical violence. I, I had to get a kid to help me. Okay? I need someone to help me demonstrate slapping on the cheek. Not that many volunteers. Okay, Emma Kate, will you help me? All right. Okay, so come over here. I'm not going to slap you, all right? Now, I'm not going to slap my child in front of the whole church so you can see that. Okay, here we go. Now, what side of the cheek did Jesus say, if you're slapped on, you should turn the other? What did he say? If someone slaps you on the right cheek. Now, most people are right-handed. If you're going to slap somebody, where is that hand going to land normally? On the left cheek. So what's Jesus referring to here? When he says, when someone slaps you on the right cheek, he is referring to this type of a slap. Right? You know, and you probably still know to this day, that that is an extremely insulting type of slap in Middle Eastern cultures. To be slapped is one thing, but to be slapped with the back of the hand, <laughs> I'm not going to slap you, you can sit down now. You, you, we made the point. To be slapped with the back of the hand was an extremely insulting experience. This text isn't necessarily about physical violence. It's about being insulted. This is about when someone insults you. The focus here is how we react when we are insulted. Do we trade insult for insult or do we simply turn the other cheek? 
Are we willing to endure more insult rather than taking matters into our own hands? The Christian, the kingdom citizen, is to be the type of person who loves God more than he loves his own reputation. Who loves God more than he loves being respected. Who loves God more than he loves his own honor. And of course, honor is a high-sounding word. We all want to be honored. But in reality, what is hurt when we are insulted isn't just our honor, it's our pride. Our pride doesn't like being insulted. Nothing will expose what's in our hearts more than when we are insulted and disrespected. Insult exposes our prideful idolatry. Insults expose who it is that is on our throne. Think about it. We go idly by day by day as our God and our God's name is blasphemed on TV, on the radio, in songs, in conversations, in jokes, and we react with passive indifference. But our name, let someone disparage our good name, our reputation, our sense of self-worth, our pride, our honor, then boy, you better watch out. Insults expose the heart. It exposes who really rules in our heart. If our heart is filled with Christ and emptied of self, then we can react like Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So Nietzsche is wrong. Nietzsche said this is about weak people. Paul says this is about strong people. Those who follow Jesus' words of, of not returning an insult for an insult are not weak. They are strong. Stronger than the one who exacts his own vengeance. Stronger than the one who takes matters into his own hands. Stronger than the one who gets even. The kingdom citizen finds his rest, his comfort, his hope, his peace, his trust in God. And in leaving things in God's hands. What is our honor anyway? I mean, think about that. When we're insulted, what's, what's our honor anyway? Which one of you in here, myself included, which one of us in here deserves any honor? None of us. So we need to set that aside. Let us set aside our honor, which is what this kingdom, this world aspires to. And let us live like citizens of a different kingdom. We must be willing to set aside our honor for the sake of Christ's honor. And if we are insulted for Christ's sake, then we are blessed, 1 Peter 4. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, some of you are already going back to your, to your Pharisee mode here. We talked about this a little bit with Chris in the front here. You're going back to Pharisee mode here. Do you ever remember the TV show Highway to Heaven? Anybody remember that? Short-lived TV show, Michael Landon. Does anybody know Michael Landon? These kids are looking at me like, who? Michael Landon, Little House on the Prairie. Okay, good guy. All right, he, he did a TV show called Highway to Heaven where he was an angel. Now, obviously, it was a theological wreck, but still. The show, he's an angel He's lost his wings, so he, you know, he's kind of like in probation, so he's been sent to the earth. And so he's on the earth now, and he's got a, a human buddy, and they go around and they do good things for people. It's like, like a, a previous and lamer version of Touched by an Angel, which was also very lame and a theological wreck. 
But anyway, which the kids still don't know because I'm dating myself still by even mentioning that show. Anyway, so in Highway to Heaven, I'm, I specifically remember one episode where, where Michael Landon has, has uh, gotten into this scuffle with somebody. And of course, he's peaceful and, and the person comes up and starts insulting him and slaps him across the face. And he, you know, turns the other cheek. And the guy slaps him across the cheek. Now, in the show, because he was an angel, he had supernatural powers as well. So he gets slapped across the, the second cheek. Then the guy goes to hit him again. And this time, Michael Landon stops his arm. And then picks him up and throws him across the room. And the guy, boom, falls. And the guy gets up and goes, I thought you were supposed to turn the other cheek. And Michael Landon said, I only have two cheeks. Right? Right? That's some of you in here. You're thinking, all right, that's fine. Turn the other cheek, but I only got two. Okay? That's not what Jesus is pointing out here. He's not trying to get us to focus on the number. Like Matthew chapter 18, when Peter comes and says, Lord, how often should I forgive my brother when he sinned against me? Jesus says, I say to you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Although the, the ESV just has 77 times, but some of your translations say 70 times seven. It's not like we're keeping a little notebook. 489. 490, you're in for it now, buddy. It's not at all. Obviously, the disciples would have understood what Jesus was saying here. In other words, you don't get even. You don't stop forgiving. Period. You turn the other cheek. You're willing to continue to receive insults. Jesus got their attention with this statement. When he says this, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, I can imagine there was a kind of a gasp there because that was an insult. And there was eager anticipation. Well, what's he going to say next? And I think it's almost humorous. It may have been humorous. I think we miss some of the humor in Jesus' statements sometimes. If anyone slaps you on the cheek, everyone's waiting to see what he says. Well, you've got another one. <laughs> you've got another cheek. What's the big deal? They would have understood exactly what he was trying to say. Don't trade insult for insult. Don't try to avenge your honor. Kingdom citizens are not in the business of defending their honor. God will ultimately defend and vindicate the honor of those who belong to him. But why? Why will God do that? Because those who belong to him have been united to his son. And God the Father has vindicated the son. You don't have any honor that needs to be vindicated, friends. You deserve hell, and so do I. Christ is to be vindicated, his honor. And so the only time that we're going to be vindicated is once we've been united to him by faith. And so it's Christ's honor that we stand up for, not ours. Hebrews 12, 3 says, Consider him who endured sinners, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Keep your eyes on Christ. It's not about defending your honor. That's how we persevere. When we look to the one with whom we are united, we refuse to revile in return, and we wait for God, and we persevere. First Peter 2. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's how we are to act. Now, that deliverance, that, that vindication, okay, it, it won't come in this life. But what is our life? For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
So we read in 1 Peter 5, 6, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties, that's your worries and your fears, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse 9, resist him. How do you resist Satan? By not fighting for your own honor. By not resisting those who insult you and insult you and insult you. Verse 9, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. I couldn't help but be thinking about these texts as we prayed for, the, for these this people in Somalia. As, as um, who was it? Uh, Chris asked us to pray for the persecuted church. And I think, what silly insults we receive here. If I went back and checked that comment board, was I talking about that in, in Bible study? Where I put a comment about a a child that had been abused, and I was just, it was horrible. And, and someone said, well, that's why I believe in abortion. Okay? In other words, punish the child because the parents abused him. And so I went in there and put a comment and, and tried to show the, the illogical thinking there that this person had. And I, I purposely didn't go back and check the comment because I knew there probably was a lot of not-so-nice things that someone had to say about me as a result of that comment. So, you know, when we go through things like that and we see stuff like that, that's nothing. There are people in Somalia that are being thrown out of their home, little girls thrown out of their home because they've professed Christ. And instead of having parents that said, oh, how wonderful that you've professed Christ. Let's go, let's go baptize you. They throw them out and call them trash. And there's a mark on them for the rest of their life. We don't know insults. We don't know hardships. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how do we resist evil? By not getting even, but by resting in God's mighty hands. So kingdom citizens are not to be people who are inclined to get even. They are willing to let go of their honor. They're also willing to let go of their possessions. Verse 40. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now the tunic was the long shirt that was um, sometimes had both arm holes and leg holes. It went, went close to the body. And then the cloak was what went over that. So if you're taking the cloak and the tunic, the person is naked. Jesus is saying that if everything is taken, okay, if, if you get something taken from you, don't, don't view your possessions in such a way that, oh, I've got to keep this at least. Be willing to let it all be taken from you. Don't hold on to your possessions. Be willing to let them go. Jesus isn't saying that every time we get something taken from us, we need to then go find the thief and say, hey, I've got more for you to take here. That's not the point. Again, let's don't be silly Pharisees in the process of trying to understand Jesus' words. He's getting our attention with an extreme example. This too would have been quite shocking. Nakedness was a shameful thing. If he takes your tunic, give him your cloak as well. It means that our possessions are nothing to us. 
Kingdom citizens don't worry about possessions. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And if kingdom citizens don't worry about their possessions, then we don't have to avenge ourselves when our possessions are taken from us unjustly. If we're not worried about possessions and someone takes them, then revenge doesn't stir up in our heart. I mean, the way I illustrate it, when I was a kid, um, after, um, like, uh, we go, whether we Easter or, like, we go out and do trick-or-treating, whatever, and have a big old pile of candy, um, I, I was a hoarder. I wanted to keep my candy at least until next Halloween, all right? I wanted to keep my candy, guard it, and eat those Reese's Cups, you know, carefully. My brother was a um, consumer, all right? And once his food, his stuff was consumed, he went to try to find new sources of candy, which was my bucket of candy. And he would begin to take stuff from my bucket. Now, if he took a Reese cup, there was no other cheek, buddy. We were dealing with that. But if he took a Tootsie Roll, I could care less. Those things are nasty. I mean, they stick to your teeth and... They don't even taste good. And I don't want to say what they look like. They're nasty. Yuck. Tootsie Rolls. Yuck. And so I don't care. So when my brother went and took that stuff, I didn't care. It didn't bother me one little bit. Not one little bit. That's the way we are to view our possessions. And I'm not trying to be silly here. Paul says that all of his stuff is dung. Everything. All of his prestige, his honor, and everything he had compared to Christ, dung. Flush it. And so when we let go of our possessions, guess what? A vengeful heart begins to fade away. We should view all of our possessions, and our attitude regarding our possessions should be that we see them as tools for kingdom purposes. But only as tools. And if they're taken from us, no matter how rudely or unjustly, we are willing to part with them. We are even willing to part with vital possessions. You know, Exodus 22, verse 26, and I'm not going to read the text now, but you can go there and read it. There were laws against taking a man's cloak. The cloak was the most important possession that a Jew had. The cloak not only was what he wore during the day, it was oftentimes what he slept with. It was like... What are, they, what are those things that people now, those snuggy things? Like, it's like their blankets slash clothes. Stupidest things you've ever seen in the world, right? That's what the cloak was like. It was not only their clothing, it was also what they slept in. It kept them warm at night. And God said, you cannot take a man's cloak. Matter of fact, he said, if you do take his cloak as a pledge, you better get it back to him before the end of the day. That's in Exodus 22. You can read that. So what Jesus is saying here is there's nothing, nothing so valuable to the kingdom citizen that he's not willing to let go of it. Again, this does not mean we can't defend our family if someone's trying to steal our car. It simply means when, our, when possessions are unjustly taken from us, we don't love our stuff more than we love God. And we don't love our stuff so much that we got to get even. The question is, do we love our stuff more than we love the kingdom? 1 Corinthians 6, 7, okay, 
This is speaking about lawsuits that brothers were bringing against each other. And Paul says this, Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Why? Because they had not gotten this. (laughs) They had not gotten what Jesus had said on the Sermon on the Mount. Kingdom citizens are not to be people who are inclined to get even. Instead, they are willing to let go of their honor. They are willing to let go of their possessions. And they are willing to let go of their rights. They are willing to let go of their rights. Verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Now you probably heard this explained before. Okay, Romans had a law that allowed them, any Roman citizen, mostly it was the Roman soldiers that would do this, but the law allowed any Roman citizen to commandeer any of their subjects. So Roman citizens could commandeer like a Jew or any other people that were under their subjection. They could commandeer one of their subjects to carry a load for them. So any Roman soldier or official who perhaps was tired of carrying his load could approach a Jewish man and command him to carry the load for him. But that law had a limit. He could only make him carry that load for one mile. Now we even see this played out in Matthew chapter 27 where someone is commandeered to carry the cross for Christ. In Matthew chapter 27, Simon of Cyrene is compelled, we read, to carry the cross. It was probably this law that was enacted. You've got to carry this. Now, the law only required, as I said, that conscripted man to carry it for one mile. After one mile, he was, the mile was up, he was free to go. But Jesus says, if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. In this case, Jesus is saying, yes, you have the right under Roman law, to be out from under your load after one mile. But I say to you, give up your rights and go another mile. We should be willing to let go of our rights. I've said this before. We live in a society where everything is considered a right. Most of what we call rights these days are simply freedoms. Friends, children especially, you need to learn this. There is a difference between a freedom and a right. There is a big difference between those two things. But in our day today, everyone wants to do whatever they want to do and says it's their right to do it. And whenever you tell them that they can't do it or they shouldn't do it, they begin to whine and complain that their rights have been violated. Christians, kingdom citizens, can't be like that. Do we stand up for the truth? Do we defend human rights? Do 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 we defend the right to worship according to our conscience? Do we look out for others' rights? Yes. So we do resist evil in that way. But what Jesus is saying... When those rights are violated, we must be people of meekness who are willing to go the extra mile without whining or complaining. Let the onlooking world see that rights are not our God. Let the onlooking world see that we love the kingdom more than we love our own own rights. We love Christ and his kingdom first and foremost. Now, Paul exhibits this in his letter to the Corinthian church. People have been falsely accusing Paul and have been questioning his apostleship. They were, there were these other apostles, these super apostles that were, that were claiming to be superior apostles. And, and uh, Paul goes on to say that as an apostle, he has certain rights, but that he was willing to let go of his rights. 1 Corinthians nine twelve. If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless... We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. We leave our rights in God's hands for the sake of the gospel. We leave our rights in God's hands for the sake of the gospel. 
That's how kingdom citizens live. But I want you to notice something about this, this third example here. Jesus doesn't just say in this example that the person was, or he doesn't say that the person was forced to go the second mile. Do you notice that? He doesn't say that the person was forced to go the second mile. He says if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. In other words, we must be willing not only to have our rights violated, we must be willing to give them up actively. It's one thing to say, okay, my rights have been violated, I'll do what Jesus says, and not try to get even. And It's another thing to say, you know what, I'm actively going to give up my right here, like Paul, to serve you. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. We must be willing to made to we must be willing to suffer inconvenience. We must be willing to put even our enemies' needs above our own. Why? For the sake of the kingdom. We love the kingdom more than we love our rights. Again, Paul demonstrates this in 1 Corinthians 9. He said, I've become all things to all people by all means that I might save some. Now, how do people normally use that text? I've become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some. I know I've mentioned this before. I know I'm redundant, but I don't care. What, how do people normally use that text? They use it to justify doing whatever they want to do to try to reach people for Christ. And it's maybe good intention, but it's totally out of context. Paul is actually talking about giving up his freedoms. You people will say, well, I can do whatever I want to because by all means I'm going to reach people so I can just practice whatever I want to do, drink whatever I want to drink, act however I want to act because I'm just trying to reach people for Jesus. Foolishness. You're just trying to please your flesh in the name of doing that. Paul says, I'll give up every right I have. I have a right to eat this meat. I have a right to worship on this day. I have a right to do this, this, and this because I'm free in Christ. But you know what? I am not going to allow that to cause other people to stumble. I'm not going to put that in the way of the gospel. So I will give those up. It is not a license to do whatever we want to do. It's following Jesus' commands to willingly give up your rights. So Paul says... For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. He became a person carrying a load for a second mile. Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now with this last example here of going the extra mile, Jesus has dug a little bit deeper. It's one thing not to retaliate when we're insulted. It's one thing not to try to get even if all of our stuff is unjustly taken. But it's another thing to willingly give up our rights. Jesus is now talking about a sacrificial heart. A sacrificial heart is not a resentful and avenging heart. You see, just like with every other aspect of the Old Testament law that Jesus has been expositing here, he is starting to show us yet again that this is all about the heart. Overcoming vengeance is all about a supernatural work of the heart. Now, the natural man can hold back to a certain degree from trading insults. The natural man may be able to put up with his possessions being confiscated, but the natural man will really have a hard time having his rights violated. And to conclude this section, Jesus digs even deeper to show what kind of heart refuses to seek its own revenge. What kind of heart refuses to even get even. And here it is. Because kingdom citizens are not to be people who are inclined to get even. 
kingdom citizens are to be people who are inclined to give generously. How do we fight? How do we fight a heart that wants to get even? We fight it with extravagant generosity. Verse 42, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Isn't it interesting that this passage that started off about revenge ends with a simple statement about generosity? I think Jesus is showing us something here. The way we overcome getting even is to be given a heart that is willing to give everything away, willing to to give everything to anyone. Generosity kills revenge. We got a hint of this in the last example, okay, where we, are, we see this call for us to be sacrificial. But now Jesus is calling us to be sacrificial and generous. Sacrificial generosity. And when those traits are in our heart, there's no room for getting even. That's why I called this message. You look at the title of the message, don't get mad, get generous. What's the, what's the statement we normally say? Don't get mad, get even. Jesus says, don't get mad, get generous. You have a generous heart that's willing to give everything away, guess what? You're not going to be a person trying to get even with people. Let's go back to the Romans passage real quick here. Romans chapter 12. How does this passage end? Okay, so we have this talking about not defending yourself. Living peaceably with all, never avenge yourselves, leave it to the wrath of God. Then we come to verse 20. To the contrary, what? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Be a generous person. It's one thing to say, all right, I'm not going to return evil for evil. I'm not going to slap him even though he slapped me. It's another thing to say, all right, what can I give him now? Boy, that hurt. Now what can I, how can I serve him? What can I give him? That type of heart kills a vengeful heart. I don't know if you guys saw the story this week of Jan Umanos and her husband, Jerry Umanos, I think they are, they're Americans, but I think of, uh, he is of a Filipino descent. Um, J- Jerry Umanos was one of the three doctors, American doctors, that was shot down in Afghanistan this week when a security guard at the hospital decided to mow down these American doctors. Well, um, when I heard that the wife, according to news stories, had forgiven the assailants, I said, I want to see more about this person. So I went and did a little research, and Jerry and Jan were, are, well, Jerry has now passed away, but he's still alive, um, very solid believers, part of a Christian medical organization, very solid in their church. And her response was this, we hold no ill will toward the Afghan people and no ill will toward the gunmen. When the world sees people react like that, when their spouse gets mowed down by a machine gun, the day later, the world takes notice. There's something different about that person. There's something different about that type of heart. This family went to Afghanistan to give themselves away. She tells that their whole purpose is they want to be the hands and feet of Christ to serve their enemies. 
They had gone to Afghanistan to bind up the wounds of Taliban. And they paid the ultimate price for it. Jerry did. But what do we see? We don't see her wanting to get even. We simply say, she said, I hold no ill will. She'll leave that into the hands of the government. Government will take care of that. Maybe. She leaves that in the hands of the civil authorities. As far as she's concerned, she holds no ill will. Why? Because she has a heart of generosity. It was evident in her life. It was evident in the, her, her husband's life. 1 Timothy 6.18 Do good. Be rich in good deeds. Be generous and be ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. So they may take hold of that which is truly life. Christians, what vengeance are you harboring this morning? Have you been insulted? Have you been disrespected? Have you been disparaged? Are you hoping that they get theirs? Are you thinking what goes around comes around like some sort of pagan hoping in karma? Repent and believe what Jesus has to say here. Are you frustrated that your stuff has been unfairly taken? Has someone borrowed something, perhaps not brought it back or brought it back broken? Are you therefore going to get even by not lending anything to that person again? If so, what makes you different than Laban, who was infuriated that someone in Jacob's camp had stolen his idols? Hmm. Perhaps the IRS has taken more than what you like. Your rights have been violated And so there's that temptation to fudge next year's tax return. I mean, it's mine anyway, right? I work for this. Just withhold reporting that income that they'll never know about. Keep the government's grubby hands off my money. Friends, what idols do you need to repent of this morning? What heart change needs to happen in you? I challenge you and myself to go home and repent. We've been holding on to things that we should let go of. We've been holding on to a pig. Pig! All the stuff we get upset about, in the end, it's nothing. It's like fighting over a pig. If you're not a believer here this morning, I beg you to repent as well. You will always be living a life for yourself until you repent of your sins and turn your life over to Christ. You cannot do what Christ has called you to do here in this text unless you've been given a new heart. And this Jesus, he died to make that happen. He took all the punishment of our vengeful attitudes that we deserve punishment for on the cross. And he lived that meek life that we couldn't live, never seeking to avenge himself. He was reviled and he did not revile in return. He suffered and he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. By his wounds, we have been healed. So come, sinner, come and be healed by his wounds and become a new man, a new man who indeed, who indeed can follow in the footsteps of our Savior, overcoming the natural inclination to get even with a supernatural inclination to be generous. Let's pray. Father, I praise you and thank you again for your word. Lord, 
every sermon I prepare is like a feast. I feel so full, I can't even get it all out onto paper. I feel like every text, Lord, should be like a 20-part sermon. But here's my burden, Father. Shouldn't that be everybody in this room? Shouldn't we all gorge ourselves on the word every day? I am so convicted that I'm 40, almost 42 years old, and there are portions of the scripture that I've never feasted upon, and there's no excuse for it. So, Father, help us to go and just feast on the word. Thank you for these words of Jesus. Lord, don't let us be fools that apply the text in a rigid, pharisaical way and simply create new laws that we can't keep. Instead, let us hear what Jesus is doing. He's taking the Old Testament law and using it like a scalpel to show what's in our heart. And we need generous hearts, Father. I am not a generous person. I thank you. I praise you that you, you allowed me to be married to a generous woman. Because I'm a miser. I hoard my Reese cups. Oh God, forgive me of my sin. And forgive all of us of our sin. And help us to be people who let go of our pride and honor. Of our possessions. And of our rights. And simply trust you. And that's when we'll see a type of generosity bubbling up in us that we've never seen before. I pray that would happen here in Harbin's. And I ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.